The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program on Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Are you looking for a way to advance your career and advance your knowledge? Well, through this online program, Yale University is training working professionals in clean energy policy, finance, and technology to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit yalecleanenergy.info slash interchange. And if you can't remember that, just go to the link in the show notes and make sure you apply before March 14th, 2021. Green Tech Media Podcast. We had this conversation probably 10 years ago where everyone was talking about, oh, well, natural gas is this great bridge fuel in the energy transition. That conversation isn't happening anymore. Um, the conversation now is, look, we have a lot of renewables that can supply us a lot of electricity, that can electrify a lot of our transport. Yeah, maybe we need some natural gas, but we certainly can't have natural gas unless we take care of its methane footprint. The pressure's on to decarbonize natural gas. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Well, here we go again. Last summer, we had an episode on this show discussing what was happening in California when a heat wave struck and caused rolling blackouts throughout the state in what was called at the time an unprecedented event. Now, as I record, the inverse situation is resulting in the same outcome in Texas, where record cold temperatures are causing outages throughout the state. It's been going on for a day and a half as we record right now and doesn't look like it's going to end anytime immediately. As is always the case in energy, the story in Texas is nuanced and never as simple as the Twitter hot takes will suggest. So there will be plenty of time in the aftermath once the power is back on for everyone and they're warming up to figure out what exactly has gone wrong in Texas. But two things stuck out to me. First, I saw someone say, uh, and I quote, Canada now needs to prepare for Texas-level summer heat, and Texas needs to prepare for Canada-level winter cold. That is the world that we're living in now, and why grid planning is getting harder and harder. Second, though there are clearly multiple proximate causes for what's going on in Texas, one factor that I think is undeniable at this point is the fact that the natural gas system has broken down. We've had well over 20 gigawatts, uh, sometimes as much as 30 gigawatts of natural gas capacity, production capacity, uh, that has disappeared. As wellheads and gas lines froze, supplies were diverted to heating rather than to power, and gas pipelines were at max capacity, which makes this a particularly timely conversation. I've been wanting to do a deep dive on natural gas for a while because it is arguably the most important current source of energy in the U.S. and in many parts of the world, but we often kind of gloss over it as we talk about decarbonization. You know, there is a decent possibility that natural gas will be phased out or nearly phased out in the long term if we're going to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions. But even if that's true, it's going to be with us for decades, particularly in heavy industry. So what are we doing about natural gas emissions today? Where do they come from? And how do we minimize them while we figure out what the transition looks like? I had a great time talking to Kate Height. 
about that issue. Kate is a principal at what was formerly known as the Rocky Mountain Institute, recently rebranded just as RMI. Kate worked for a long time at the EPA on carbon markets and on the clean power plan, but since then has focused on heavy industry and particularly um, on natural gas. She led the Global Methane Initiative's oil and gas program. She wrote a great report last year called The Role of Gas in the Energy Transition. And she's now part of RMI's new effort to get businesses, governments, and other actors in heavy industry into the same room to figure out how to decarbonize. So the pressure's on. How do we tackle natural gas emissions and ultimately think about phasing out natural gas, both in the power sector and in heavy industry? Here's my conversation with Kate. Kate, welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. All right. Let's start at the highest possible level. How do we actually use natural gas today? So natural gas is pretty important in the world today. It makes up about 20% of the sort of energy supply in the world. Um, we use it in a bunch of different things. Um, the biggest use of gas is in what we define as industry, so heavy industry making stuff. Um, then that's about 30%. Then about 20% each for running power plants, for powering homes and heating homes. And then there are a number of other uses, um, a big important one being manufacture of chemicals, like a lot of the fertilizer that we make and use in agricultural applications, um, and then kind of on down. Um, but really, it's industry, electricity, and residential heating that are the biggies with natural gas. It's actually something I think a lot of folks outside the natural gas industry don't realize is that we use more natural gas for industrial uh, applications than we do in the power sector. Despite it being a, a you know super important part of the power sector, it, that's actually not the largest source of use for natural gas. Yeah, that's right. And when we think about kind of the the uses of natural gas moving into the future, it's really the industry wedge that is the hardest to solve for, right? As we're seeing our power systems evolve and our transportation system evolving, enabling us to move off of fossil fuels, that's not necessarily the case for industry. Because even if you're solving for the thermal heat inputs, which is a lot of what natural gas provides, you have the feedstock question, right? A lot of natural gas is used and is actually cracked up to make chemicals that we use every day. I want to come back to that. I spent some time on um, what to do about natural gas usage in industry. But before we do, it it seems too timely not to talk a little bit about what's going on in Texas at the moment. So we're recording at 1 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday afternoon. Um, we're right now, what, about 36 hours into what have been uh, rotating and in some cases constant outages kind of up and down Texas, actually in some other states as well. And I, I think there's going to be plenty of time to do a postmortem on what the many causes of this terrible situation have been. But clearly one of them has been related to natural gas because there's upwards of 20 gigawatts. I've seen numbers as high as 30 gigawatts of natural gas generating capacity that is offline in Texas right now, clearly contributing to this, this shortfall that um, is driving all these blackouts. What does that tell you, if anything, about natural gas, particularly in the power sector or more broadly, sort of how the natural gas system relates to to reliability? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm from Texas. And so this is a totally unprecedented situation for them down there. I mean, I remember having a blackout maybe in the, the mid 80s. And it was such a big deal. It made a huge impression upon me with all the snow that we had on the ground. So I really feel for all my friends who are down there suffering through this right now. 
Um, you know, natural gas and coal plants both are not winterized down there to the extent they are in other parts of the nation, right? And so when they have their cooling supplies of water that freeze up, they have to shut down, right? Um, and that coupled with a huge surging demand for electricity um, and for gas for home heating as a result of the temperatures has just sort of landed us in the middle of this perfect storm. You know, it's it's sort of, as you say, I mean, there'll be a big postmortem about this <laughs> after the fact, of course. I think this is a real opportunity to examine a couple different things related to how we consider electricity usage. Um, so one is really thinking about how this kind of situation can be prevented moving forward with some more improvements on the demand side, right? So Amory Levins, the founder of RMI, always talks about kind of better insulated homes acting as thermal storage systems themselves, um, sort of helping individual customers and communities to better ride through these extreme events. Um, and these demand side efficiency measures can help reduce the overall peaks during these big temperature events. Um, but they would, of course, hope help in both winter peaks and in the summer peaks, which we also do experience in Texas. I think another interesting thing to think about is, right, so Texas is a deregulated market. And so one of the problems that plants have been having, in addition to their mechanical difficulties, is just getting their hands on enough gas to run their generators, because a lot of this gas is going to individual homes to heat them right now. Um, and so I think that this is a real opportunity, and this is something that, um, that RMI is doing some work on in sort of the more regulated um, markets about um, how we can take the gas system together with the electricity system and take a really total energy system approach to thinking about how we use gas in our systems, right, to make sure that we're accounting for what could be considered peak demand for residential use of gas and commercial use of gas, but also how that has knock-on effects in the electricity system itself. Yeah, I think that's it's an interesting, unfortunate dynamic at play in Texas where because it's cold weather, because the homes are not weatherized, as you alluded to, there's a ton of demand for natural gas for heating purposes, which then takes the natural gas from what otherwise would have been used for the power sector, which then helps to contribute to the shortfall, which then causes the outages, which then makes it harder for homes that do use electricity for heat, which I understand there to be actually a lot of in Texas, um, to heat those homes. It's, it, you know, presents a, a somewhat challenging story to tell for the kind of electrify everything movement, particularly electrify heating, uh, when you have that kind of a dynamic at play. I think that's true. I think there also, though, is some really interesting stuff to explore with regard to storage of electricity over time. I mean, as you likely know, especially in the months when Texas is really counting on their wind capacity, right? In winter, they don't really count on wind that much. It's like 10% of their energy. Um, but when there's overcapacity, right, in, in the fall and the spring, there's a real opportunity to store that in batteries, right? So the infrastructure isn't in place right now, but thinking about how we can capture some of that excess energy and batteries and then have it at the ready for events like this is really something to consider moving forward as, they, as they're transforming their, their operations in Texas. Yeah, I agree. I think once the dust settles on... This situation in Texas, energy storage is going to get a hard look, both in the context of shorter duration energy storage for resiliency type applications, not dissimilar from what we've seen here in California when we've had these proactive power shutoffs over the past couple of years, uh, but also, as, as you're alluding to, the really long duration energy storage that can you know, shift seasonal load or seasonal ge generation from the, the summer into the winter or whatever it might be. So I think it's too early 
to say exactly what effects this uh, current situation in Texas is going to have on natural gas or on any other source of energy generation. What does seem clear at this point is that it's going to cause some kind of reform in the Texas electricity market in ERCOT. We've already seen the governor, Governor Abbott, um, put a ERCOT reform as a new item on the, the state legislature's docket for the next legislative session. It's clear that that is going to get a hard look and probably something will change in the ERCOT market. Unclear what at this point, but, you know, seems fair to me to assume that that they should take a, a hard look at it, given what's happening there right now. What I, I think we don't know yet is exactly what that's going to mean for any given type of generation, any given business model, and for the ERCOT market structure, which is itself unique and, you know, the subject of um, many accolades and, and many haters as well. But I want to transition from talking about the immediate Texas debacle to the broader question of natural gas and how it's going to evolve in our energy system. And particularly, I want to talk about gas in the industrial sector, because as we discussed before, uh, that is the single largest end use of natural gas and arguably the hardest to abate, at least from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective. So orient us a little bit more, which sectors dominate the use of natural gas in in the industrial sector and what makes them hard to abate from an emissions perspective? Sure. So there's really two big uses of natural gas in industry. One is for high heat thermal inputs, right? Running the stuff that, that makes things go, that powers the big machines that make the stuff. And then the second thing is actually as a feedstock to make products. And interestingly, that feedstock component is a really big one. So when we look at kind of the breakdown, the top five um, suspects in natural gas use in industry, the first one, about 30% is chemicals manufacturing. And a lot of that is chemicals used in agricultural applications, right? Um, We've got printing and paper manufacturing, so pulp and paper, Um, petroleum and coal products manufacturing, a category that's called non-metallic products manufacturing. So this is like cement and mineral processing, and then oil and gas. So you'll note that among that cohort, right, three of those things, chemicals, petroleum and coal products manufacturing, and oil and gas refining, are all using natural gas as a primary input to make the stuff they ultimately want to make, right? So even if we somehow had a magic switch tomorrow and could electrify all of these very high heat processes, we still don't have adequate substitutes for these feedstocks that go in to manufacturing some of the products we use every day. And so we're talking about the end uses for a moment. We should also talk about the upstream stuff, right? Because a lot of the focus around natural gas and emissions are are questions around methane leakage further upstream. Right. On a relative basis, um, where do the emissions come from generally? Yeah, so it's a it's a big problem, right? And this is why natural gas is really getting a lot of scrutiny, right? We had this conversation probably 10 years ago where everyone was talking about, oh, well, natural gas is this great bridge fuel in the energy transition. That conversation isn't happening anymore, right? Um, the conversation now is, look, we have a lot of renewables that can supply us a lot of electricity, that can electrify a lot of our transport. Yeah, maybe we need some natural gas, but we certainly can't have natural gas unless we take care of its methane footprint. So, I mean, methane is natural gas, right? That is what it is. 
And what happens when we take it out of the ground is a lot of it leaks, right? Whether intentional venting into the atmosphere or accidental leaks, these big super emitter vents, like that big storage tank, remember, in Aliso Canyon a couple of years ago? Um, that's kind of on the, the, the production storage side. Then we have natural gas that's moving through pipes to get places so people can use it. And then we have natural gas in our distribution networks. So in terms of the culprits where we see a lot of methane emissions in the U.S., production is really the biggest. Um, then we see it in distribution networks um, and then in the transmission, sort of the midstream segment. Um, so this is a big piece of the puzzle that scientists are wrestling with right now. And um, a lot of proactive regulation is taking place in a number of progressive states on this, including California, which has very stringent regulations in New Mexico and Colorado or others. Um, but this is really a big target, I think, for the new presidential administration to really double down on methane surrounding the natural gas industry. So I think we'll come back to what those standards look like and what technologies are required to enact them. But it feels to me like there are a bunch of different pathways that are not mutually exclusive necessarily, but that are all being proposed and developed to decarbonize natural gas or, I guess, de-greenhouse gas eyes. Does, does decarbonize apply when you're talking about methane? Um, I guess not because it's made of carbon. <laughs> I mean, I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep it in the system as long as possible before it's combusted, right? Because after methane is combusted, it creates CO2, right? So on the end side of it, you need to figure out what to do with those combustion emissions as well, right? Which is where a big part of the conversation comes in on sort of CCS associated with facilities that combust a lot of methane. Right. Okay. So, but on the keep the emissions inside, keep the methane inside until it gets combusted. One of the suggestions, which has some activity around it, is um, basically decommodification of gas, differentiated gas, so that it, you know you can say, look, I'm buying natural gas that is somehow cleaner than the natural gas that you are buying. What's happening around that? And what's your take on the impact that it could have? Yeah. So this is an area that's really picked up traction, I'd say, in the past probably three years in an area that RMI has really focused on in the past two. Um, we recently developed a, a standard for differentiated gas called MIQ in partnership with Systemic, an outfit based in Europe. Um, but there have been a couple of transactions for differentiated gas, right? Or for gas whose, whose emissions are offset, um, right? With some of these LNG cargoes like Shell has been, been shipping over to Japan. I think that it's an interesting idea, right? I mean, like when it comes down to it, everything is carbon pricing, <laughs> right? And so this is another way to get about carbon pricing in a different way by rewarding those that are minimizing the methane emissions associated with the natural gas production, right? So rather than a tax on emissions, it's a reverse tax or an incentive on not emitting, right? Um, and I think that this is a this area has a lot of interesting potential because A, it can be deployed on a voluntary basis when regulations are not in play. But B, it can very easily be embedded in a regulatory framework. And in fact, that's exactly the way the rec market took off, right, in the U.S. We had these sort of bilateral contracts for renewable energy, um, but it was really when we started seeing the rec instrument being embedded in state and national policy that we really saw that market take off. So I think in the same way, something like the MIQ standard and certificates generated for gas certified according to the standard, we could potentially be seeing them 
be traded like Rex um, in the coming years. Could you be more explicit about what it would actually mean? Like, I understand buying gas that has, you know, the equivalent of offsets associated with it. But setting that aside, what might be the actual difference in production or transportation delivery, whatever it might be between gas that meets this standard and gas that does not? Yeah. In order to really have a truly differentiated gas, you need to have some level of transparency around the methane emissions that are associated with that gas. Right. So there is a whole suite of new technologies out there ranging from satellites to sensors that you can slap on a storage tank that give us more and more granular information about whether or not a particular oil and gas asset is leaking. So more wide scale deployment of those sorts of detection um, methods is super important. Those detection methods are also kind of evolving into um, methods that can actually be used to quantify, right? So not only do you know whether or not you have a leak on a storage tank, for example, like the Eliso Canyon example, but also you know exactly what the leak rate is per minute, right? So you can determine, you know, if you are running an ESG report for your company and you determine that you've released X number of tons of methane in a year, then if you have an offset program, for example, you can go after offsets to try to remediate the damage that had been done by the unintended leaks, right? So I think that the the monitoring technology is huge and very important and evolving super rapidly right now. There are a lot of people in this space right now. The second thing is really making sure that the people who operate the equipment on the day-to-day, who are opening hatches, they're releasing pressure, they are making sure that the equipment is deployed properly, are trained in the best practices that are going to enable them to really capture the methane instead of just venting it to the atmosphere. So those are two really important pieces of the puzzle here. I think that um, we're going to really see a movement um, not only on methane but on other GHGs, and you know the Climate Trace Coalition is a big part of this, and just having more and more transparency into where emissions are coming from in real time, um, which will enable not only operators to be able to take action more quickly, but for policymakers to be able to determine, okay, it looks like this category of assets is really struggling. We need to put some proactive um, regulations in place to make sure that this is the place where operators are first looking for problems. A pause here to talk about a new program from Yale University that is going to be of particular interest to our listeners. So look, in this time of COVID, you're looking at ways that you can expand your knowledge set. Some of that is remote. And Yale University has put together a remote course to bring together professionals from all over the world to learn more about policy, finance, clean energy, deployment, uh, technology, and put it together in one package that can help working professionals expand their careers and their networks. It's there to help inspire action on climate change, to help understand how to accelerate deployment at scale, to get clarity on training and building up your network. The world urgently needs leaders with capacity in the areas of policy, finance, and technology, and that is you. And that is precisely why the Yale Center for Business and the Environment has drawn on its vast network of professionals and on the expertise of the Yale faculty to offer a unique program, marrying academic rigor with practical skills. Learn more about the certificate by clicking through the link in the show notes. And remember, you have to apply by March 14th, 2021. That's the Yale program in financing and deploying clean energy. Check it out. I've been on a... uh what I've been calling carbon transparency kick for the past 
18 months or so. I just think like, I think there's a, a big wave coming of efforts at various levels, be it at the industrial B2B level down to like the consumer level for at least just transparency into the carbon emissions or I guess greenhouse gas emissions impact of any given decision or any embedded in any given product or service or whatever it might be. I think this is a core component of that. But how, how big a difference could that make theoretically? Right, like how um, how big a deal are the methane emissions from the up and upstream and midstream portion of the natural gas ecosystem? In terms of tonnage that can be saved, I mean, we think that you know when you when you look at methane and its global warming potential of about you know eighty four times that of CO two on a twenty year time horizon, you're looking at about sixteen percent of global GHG emissions are coming from human-made methane emissions. Now, that's not just oil and gas; that's that's all methane emissions. But it's a pretty big opportunity. Okay, so differentiated gas and the decommodification of of natural gas is kind of one pathway, not mutually exclusive with, but another one that um, I think has started to gain some traction is blending some source of zero emissions gas into the the natural gas pipeline infrastructure. So this could be renewable natural gas. This could be hydrogen, potentially. What role do you think pipeline blending might play here? I think it has a role to play. I mean, all hands on deck here, right? Renewable natural gas, right, which is biogas, which is made from methane from other sources, right, be they from manure, lagoons, et cetera is the same thing chemically as natural gas pulled out of the ground, the same hydrocarbon structure. So that's that's an easy one to blend in, right? The, the rub on renewable natural gas is supply, right? And can you get enough supply to displace? Um, blending of things like hydrogen is also another possibility, but hydrogen is not the same molecule, right? It's much smaller. Um, and so there are restrictions on how much hydrogen you can blend into natural gas moving through the current types of pipelines. If you wanted to blend in more hydrogen, you would probably need to upgrade your your infrastructure to make sure that um, the hydrogen molecules were not going to leak out and you weren't going to have problems. Um, and that kind of gets to the question of, well, do we really want to look toward a future of a lot of hydrogen blending in natural gas pipelines, which is then going to lock us into upgrading our natural gas pipelines, right? So I think that, you know, both hydrogen and RNG are part of the solution. I think the question for both is, and for natural gas, is what is the best and highest use of it, right? <laughs> you know, if you look at um, natural gas distribution companies, many of them are looking to these solutions right now to try to minimize um, or at least alleviate the greenhouse gas footprint of the gas they're running through their distribution networks because some of them are grasping at straws, right? They already have very efficient networks. They've done a great job cleaning them up, but at the end of the day, they're still running gas through them, right? And so they're looking to these alternative fuels they can run through. Um, and sort of the way I think about that is I think it's wonderful that they've made these improvements, but we need to look toward a future where where we are using natural gas is in the place where natural gas is most needed. You know, when we're thinking about the uses of gas, whether it be natural gas, renewable natural gas, if it be hydrogen, the thing we need to think about the most is kind of what is the best and highest purpose for that gas. If we need to have gas in the system, we need to use it where there's no alternative for it, right? And we no longer need new natural gas combined cycle power plants because we have renewable alternatives. 
We have better solutions in transportation um, right now with wide-scale electrification of transportation. We don't, however, have a great solution for industry, right? So as we're looking to use these um, fossil fuels in industry, we need to make sure that we're really putting them where they're needed and not where there are substitutes that are readily available. And that's really a focus of what we're trying to think through on the industrial solution side of RMI is thinking about, okay, what are the industries that are kind of some of the first movers who are going to be able to help us kind of unlock um, demand for some fuels that can really help kick off the industrial transformation in a real way. So what does that look like then? Let's just imagine you're a gas distribution company and you, as you said, you've done all the right work at this point to make your system as efficient as possible and to minimize methane leakage, uh, but you have all this infrastructure and you're flowing a lot of gas through it. Right now, what should you be doing to plan for that future today? And will it inevitably result in stranded assets from the infrastructure that you've got today, or is there a way to avoid that? Well, I think there's some interesting opportunity um, potentially in using some of that infrastructure with some upgrades for hydrogen storage. Right. We started today's conversation talking about the situation they find themselves in in Texas with regard to the electricity failures. And, you know, hydrogen's a great big old battery <laughs> if we can use it in the right way. So I think that's an interesting opportunity. Um, but the reality is that a lot of these distribution companies are looking toward new models, new revenue models, right? Becoming integrated energy companies who are not just providing gas, but are also providing electricity from a number of different sources. So I really see that's the way that things are heading, in addition, of course, to continuing to supply their industrial customers. What about using the natural gas distribution infrastructure as the means to flow around methane, but then to use that methane to produce hydrogen. This has been, you know, there's a few companies pursuing, I guess what they're calling a turquoise hydrogen pathway, which is uh, using a process called methane pyrolysis to convert natural gas to hydrogen and generally solid carbon. And then you take the solid carbon, you either do something with it, uh, like you use it in tires where we use carbon black or you sequester it. Either way, you've separated out the carbon so it, it is it is uh, emissions free and you have hydrogen, which is, I guess now we're calling turquoise hydrogen. So rather than creating, either upgrading all of our infrastructure that we have to shoot hydrogen around in these pipes, um, keep natural gas flowing in the pipes, but then produce hydrogen with it? Well, I guess it depends on where the natural gas is flowing to, right? I mean, like most of the hydrogen produced in the world today is made from natural gas, right? So, and most what happens is it's, you know, broken up, made into hydrogen and CO2, and that CO2 goes into the atmosphere, right? So I actually had not heard about turquoise hydrogen. I did not know there was yet another color of hydrogen. <laughs> I'm sure um, there are more coming. Too. <laughs> I'm sure that I'm mean, looking forward to like the magenta hydrogen of the future. Um, yeah, I think that, look, all options are on the table here, but I think that we need to kind of separate the out the distribution networks that are running, running natural gas to homes from those that are running them to industry because those are very different things, right? And I think that, you know, in terms of the natural gas distribution networks that are built out for homes right now, I mean, this is a big area of practice for our building electrification program at RMI. 
we strongly believe that new construction needs to be built in absence of natural gas hookups to that new construction, right? Um, certainly, there's going to be a role for gas to play in feeding the existing infrastructure that's there, you know, as we move to retrofit it. Um, but I think the idea that um, you would be able to use those same distribution networks to run hydrogen to, I guess you could have a little tiny <laughs> hydrogen manufacturing um, hookup at your home, but I think it's probably not the, the best use of resources. <laughs> you mentioned before a host of new technologies that are enabling us to get better transparency, at least, into where methane emissions are coming from, particularly upstream and midstream. Let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, what is the fundamental challenge with tracking methane leakage and methane emissions? And what's the suite of technologies that looks most promising to you? Um, yeah, so the fundamental problem is attribution, right? So we have satellites and a growing number of satellites. So there are some that are owned by, you know, things like the European Space Agency in Japan, et cetera, that are out there that are monitoring for greenhouse gas emissions. We have new technology that's going to go up. For example, EDS MethaneSat um, is going to be launching, I think, in 2022 and is specifically focused on methane emissions. State of California is also considering putting one up as well. Um, to date, what we have seen is that we don't, you can see methane from satellites. <laughs> it can be gamed, right? So what we have seen, for example, when the satellite flies over the oil fields in Russia, they might turn some equipment off when that satellite is going over so you can't detect things quite as much, right? <laughs> Cloud cover is a problem there as well. But fundamentally with the satellites, you can see a lot of cool stuff, but you end up having to use models to figure out where those methane emissions actually came from, right? Because methane is very light, it rises up, it's very diffuse. If it's a windy day, say it's right next to a concentrated animal feeding operation, who knows where that methane came from? So it's really difficult to pinpoint where the methane is coming from. So you have that layer. You have sort of the next down layer, which would be um, flyovers, right, with planes or drones. You can also mount these same sort of sensors on cars or on a handheld device, right, where you can kind of walk around and try to get closer and closer to the source and, you know, take some samples and figure out, well, it looks like this area was a maybe a high concentration of methane. Let's go sniff around a little bit and see what we can see with our, um, with our drone. So that can get you part of the way, <laughs> but I don't think that we're going to really be able to engineer a great solution until we're able to couple that top-down information with engineered models of what we see on the ground in terms of equipment failures and where methane is coming from. This is something that I'm really excited about um, with RMI's oil and gas program um, and the work that we're doing to support the Climate Trace Coalition um, and figuring out how those engineering models that say, okay, well, this in this geography, this type of equipment is widely used. It looks like it has a fail rate of X percent. Therefore, these people should be going out and sampling the methane emissions coming from that equipment more often than from this equipment, right? I think that's going to enable us to have much more targeted mon monitoring so we can actually get more reliable data. Um, and that is what I'm looking forward to coming out as sort of as we have these advances in satellites that are not able to just detect these plumes, but actually move toward doing more attribution coupled with this modeled stuff, I think it's going to have some really interesting results. And it's really going to give policymakers the information they need to target um, the places where operators need to look first. 
That sounds kind of like a classic application of machine learning, like the exact kind of thing we see a lot of across a lot of different sectors these days, which is like, okay, what you need to be able to do is build some version of a digital twin of the the physical environment. You need to then apply a bunch of real world data, maybe in the form of image analysis from satellite data or whatever it might be, some computer vision stuff, apply that into your digital twin, use that to predict where methane leaks are occurring or where they might occur and then use that to prioritize. It, it feels, I know I'm making it sound simpler than it is, but it seems like exactly the kind of problem that modern data science should be able to address. Is it just that it, it hasn't yet been addressed yet or has, has there been a, a barrier to doing so? I don't think there's been a barrier. I think we've had just such a rapid advance in detection technology that now is really the time to do it, right? So we're able to not only have these very high-level satellite pictures, but we can also get a much more granular view with some of the detection technology on the ground, I mean, ranging to like very simple, inexpensive sensors that you can slap on things like storage tanks, right? So I think now is really the moment for methane, and I think the, the attention has been focused so much on the natural gas industry and the methane problem associated with the natural gas industry, that now is just a great time for this to take off. What role do you think the new administration plays here in the United States? Um, what have we heard from Biden and his campaign during the campaign or anything since he's he's taken office? Is this a, is, is um, methane emissions a priority for, for the administration? What, what might they do? Yes, 100%. Yes. Um, methane emissions were a priority of the previous Democratic administration, and they're a priority of the new administration coming in as well. Um, the Trump administration kind of dismantled a lot of the methane regulations that were in process um, during the tail end of the Obama administration. So I, I think that you'll see sort of a, a re-pursual <laughs> of those regulations. And I think it's a really nice opportunity because the technology, even in that five-year time span, has advanced so much that I think the new regulations that they'll be focusing on will be able to get us an even more granular picture of what's going on and really take more effective action. So clearly, and and this is nothing new for us on the show, we've been spending a fair amount of time on this topic. Industrial emissions are going to be, I think, a big area of focus for some period of time moving forward because it's clearly a big problem from a uh, greenhouse gas abatement perspective. And, and, you know, I think we, we need all hands on deck. RMI has a, a pretty interesting program that you guys are a part of. I think started RMI has a, a program that um, was recently announced that I found really interesting called the mission possible initiative. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what the hope is there with regard to getting these heavy emitting industries together? Yeah, sure. Um, so a few weeks ago, um, we did announce the Mission Possible Partnership um, in collaboration with a number of different partners that we have who are focused on sectoral emissions. So working with the Energy Transitions Commission, the We Mean Business Coalition, um, and the World Economic Forum. So we really identified that there's this huge gap in the international kind of climate architecture, right? So up to this point, everything has really been focused on national commitments, right? So this is my nationally determined contribution. This is how my country is going to get there. These are the supportive policies that I'm going to put in place. But kind of looking at all those national commitments added up together, it's not going to get anywhere close to getting us where we need to go by mid-century, right? Right. 
So when you look at things from a different lens, you look at what is the thing that a lot of these big economies have in common? Well, it's industry. And industry is powered by fossil fuels to the for the most part. And these industrial commodities are traded across borders, right? So the idea of the Mission Possible Partnership is to figure out um, in cooperation with industry how we can sort of stand up solutions to industrial decarbonization in seven target sectors. Um, over the the next decade. And this is going to really require what I think is a very interesting ecosystem approach, kind of bringing not only industry players to the table, but also those that are uh, you know supplying financing to them, the customers who are buying their products, and of course, the governments who really need to put the supportive policies in place to enable this to take off. Um, so I'm very excited about this because I think it has some really interesting um, possibilities and very forward-looking um, industries like steel, for example, right, which really has an opportunity to really um, kind of release a, a race to the top with regard to green green hydrogen use and green steel manufacture and really show that across borders, you know, if you have a coalition of the willing um, moving forward together and demonstrating what's possible, it makes it easier for policymakers to put that supportive infrastructure in place to make it happen. I think it'll be really interesting to see, especially, you know, we've started to see in some of these heavy industries, steel is a good example. There's this Steel Zero initiative, which is a, a coalition of large steel purchasers committing to saying that they will buy only green steel by mid-century or something like that. And, you know, having um, these consortia of large customers basically creating a demand pull for greener versions of, you know, differentiated product um, in these heavy industries, I think will be an interesting dynamic and, and, and will contribute along with all the other things that you're describing to just a general you know, sense of momentum around um, technologies that allow these sectors to decarbonize. I think that's right. I think that's also the area where we as individual consumers have an opportunity to, to exercise our voices, right? So say you're going to go buy a Volvo, right? You would love to know where the steel in the Volvo comes from, right? Volvo happens to be a very progressive company, so they're part of that coalition. But the demand side pull, I think, really can't be underestimated, especially in this time of real climate activism among young people. People want to know where their stuff comes from. And coupled with this real drive toward traceability of emissions and attributes, like you mentioned, I think it's going to be a really interesting um, and exciting opportunity over the next five to 10 years. Kate, thank you so much for, for being here today. Well, you're more than welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Kate Height is a principal at RMI where she focuses on decarbonizing heavy industries. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio in partnership with Greentech Media. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. Tell us what you thought of the conversation. Send us show ideas, tweet at us at at Interchange Show, or send us an email at postscriptaudio at gmail.com. If you like the show, give us a rating, share it with a friend. It helps other people learn about the show. If you didn't like the show, that's on you. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange from Greentech Media.